I speak to you in the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Amen. There's a connection here with both of the passages that we've just heard this morning that I'd like to begin by drawing attention to, and that is the aspect of being tested by God. Uh, They share more than that, but I want us to at least see this, that in the first reading we have the instance in which uh, Abraham was tested by God to offer his son Isaac up as a burnt offering. And we see how that went and that Abraham passed the test. And on many other occasions, in between, from that point up to the gospel reading, you can read about God doing this with his people, testing them, trying them for the purpose of proving them, and for purposes that go beyond our understanding, to be honest. But here in the gospel reading, we also have a test of God's people being directed at his disciples. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now, it doesn't say that God or that Jesus taught them for the purpose of testing them, but it certainly was a test. Because in response to this, Peter, speaking up first, but probably for all, resisted it and said, no, Jesus, that must not be the way. There must be another way failing the test. I've been reading an author lately uh, who's written a devotional work that I've been working through, and uh, this man emphasizes the importance of reading slowly, which for me is easy because by nature I'm a slow reader. Um, So using this skill to my advantage and getting the most out of it, he says, why don't you Try reading slowly with all of the information that's coming at you today. Just slow down. Don't worry about how much you're reading, but take in what you are reading slowly and let it digest. Even stop in the middle of your reading. Write some notes down. Meditate on it. Ask God to help you see things in it that you might otherwise have moved on from. And he will. And this is applicable to all sorts of different kinds of material that we read, but certainly Holy Scripture. So with that in mind, over the past week, I set about with the intention to do what I always do, read slowly, but with the mindset to get the most out of it. What's really going on here in these words? And It's not easy to do, especially when you come to a passage that, of course, you've heard before, not once, twice, or even three times, but countless times, like this gospel reading, and you think, or at least you're tempted to think, as I am, oh, I know what's going on here, and you get the surface details and you move on. 
Well, over the past week, slowing down a bit and being more reflective and asking for God's guidance, I began to see things that I haven't seen before. And for that matter, I didn't get beyond the first sentence of this gospel reading before I was seeing plenty of material to offer for us this morning. And that is what I want to do this morning, is simply offer some observations that I think are very good to see for yourself, so that you can see and understand and come to know Jesus more clearly and faithfully. And it all comes, as I've said, from this very first sentence. He began, Jesus began to teach his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. From this teaching alone, this single sentence, we learn in the first place that Jesus possesses the power of divine foreknowledge. Jesus is foretelling what is going to come. He's telling the future. I was reading some commentators on this passage, and they were using the word predict over and over again, consistently, actually. And I thought, well, maybe that's technically right to say that Jesus was predicting the future, but at least, at least the way in which we use that word prediction commonly, I don't think that captures what's going on here. Weathermen predict the future by taking in all the variables and putting it through the models and then making an educated guess. We know how that can go recently. Businessmen predict the future of the markets by looking at the winds of the day and the numbers of the day and trying to forecast what's coming in the economy. In contrast, that is not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is not predicting his death in that sense. What I mean by that is Jesus is not saying, look, guys, there's going to come a point at which I'm going to anger so many people that it's going to hit a critical mass and enough people are going to begin to turn against me because they're not going to like what I'm saying or claiming. And at some point, I could see this happening. It's very likely that they're going to reject me even to the point of sending me to the cross and I'm going to die. That's not what Jesus is doing. He's not taking all the variables in play around him and coming up with the best guess of his future destiny. No, he's saying, this must happen. Not only must it, but in a synonymous way, This will happen. And this reading is the first of three occasions in Mark's gospel where he foretells the future, future events that are to come with perfect accuracy. And of course, as we've read, the disciples did not understand it. It was only after the fact, after Jesus risen from the dead, 
when the tomb is empty, when the women showed up at the tomb and they encountered angels, and the angels said, do you not remember? He told you all this was going to happen. And then the strings of their minds and their hearts began to resonate and remember these predictions in the fullest sense. It's not the only time that Jesus did this. Also after being raised from the dead, Jesus turned to Peter and told him how he was going to die, looking out decades into the future. You remember from John's gospel towards the end there, in the final chapter, he said, Peter, there's going to come a day And on that day, you're going to stretch out your hands, and someone is going to dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. And John says, filling in the gaps, that he said this to him in order to tell him, foretell, the way in which he was to die. What's going on here? Well, being honest and taking Jesus at his words... When we slow down and let these sink in, we have to come away with the conclusion of nothing less than that Jesus is omniscient. He's not guessing. However informed those guesses might be, he knows with certainty. He knows the future. It's easy for us to attribute this quality to God, generally speaking, when we think about a higher power. Even people who consider themselves spiritual find it tolerable to suggest that this God or a being of some kind can know all things. People don't have difficulty with that. But it requires much more faith quite frankly, to take more steps in the direction of attributing those same abilities and qualities to Jesus himself. Looking back in the Old Testament, we read some passages here that I'll just read for us that affirm for us the omniscience of God, knowing all things. In the book of Isaiah, the 46th chapter, God says, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me. I declare the end from the beginning, and from ancient times I declare things which have not been done, saying, My purposes will be established, and I will accomplish my good pleasure. Moreover, you could turn to the book of the Psalms, where the psalmist says the same. Great is the the Lord, and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. And again, Psalm 139, even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you already know it. He knows all things. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, I find this powerful, comforting, encouraging. 
on a collective level as a church, not knowing the future, what's going to happen in terms of the next rector, when people in, our, in their anxious states of mind tend to collectively not know what's happening, it gets worrisome. And nerves are on edge. And people wonder. But can't you just turn at least to Jesus and say, you know, you know, and draw comfort from that? God knows. He knows exactly who is in mind, exactly who is prepared, without wavering at all. And even more personally, whatever you're going through in life, whatever it is, just the fact that you can turn to God and know that He knows what's going to happen. He knows it fully. He may not tell you what's going to happen, and that may be very well a good thing. Because we may be found, like Peter, opposing him. When Jesus told Peter and the disciples what was going to happen, they resisted the will of God. Similarly, if God were to tell us things that are to come in our lives, things that we're wrapped up in, if he were to just put all those details out for us, how inclined would we be sometimes to turn and go another direction? Follow the course of Jonah. Probably more times than we are willing to admit. This leads me to another observation. Secondly, and I think this is just as important to see from this teaching, that Jesus, knowing full well what must come to pass, did not seek to escape this course. Knowing the fullness of a great sense of personal loss to himself, knowing full well the fullness of the humiliation that he was going to suffer and endure, he set his face like flint right towards it, not looking back, not looking in another direction, but headed right for it. And I admire this. That doesn't do justice to what this does in me. You remember when God called Moses into service and he said, Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt. I want you to be my mouth and I want you to go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Do you remember Moses' response? No, not me. Surely you can find someone else. I'm going to be humiliated. I'm going to be rejected. God says, I know. I want you to do it. <laughs> Look at Jesus' response. Preparing to face humiliation that no one has seen before to such a degree that is unfathomable and sets himself in that way. I find this extremely encouraging 
to the later teaching that comes in this passage when Jesus then turns and says, okay, and I want you to take up your cross and follow me. Because he's not saying, I want you in your own strength to take up your cross and follow me just because it's a good thing to do or because it's virtuous or for any other, other reason. But he's saying, I'm going first in a way that I'm not even asking you to do it. I'm taking up my cross for you in a way that you never will be able to. And then you take up your cross. But we don't do this alone. We do it in the light and understanding that he goes before us. We are so inclined to underestimate both the exaltation of Jesus, his highness, seated at the right hand of the Father, and his lowliness, his humility, how low he went. If it wasn't enough already, Jesus condescended from heaven to be born and take on human flesh, but even more so went lower to the point of excruciating death, judgment, suffering on the cross. This is the very definition of humility, setting himself aside in every possible way for the sake of others. And this is someone, this Lent, that I would hold forth and suggest this is someone you can follow. No one else has done this in this way. And this is someone that you can follow throughout the season of Lent, and not only Lent, throughout the longevity of your life for eternity to come, for who he is. I would end with this note. It's important, the context of this passage immediately preceding this teaching. The disciples, Peter again, accurately identify who Jesus is. They say, you are the Christ. They get that right. But knowing who Jesus is is not sufficient necessarily to take up your cross and follow him. You have to take that knowledge of who he is and seek to trust him with your cross, with your life, with everything. Amen.